Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, February the 14th, 2023, Valentine's Day, the day of love or the day of wannabe love. But in spite of it being Valentine's Day, our big problems are not easily solved. We did a show this morning about the crisis of democratic capitalism with Martin Wolf, the great FT writer, and as he acknowledged both the simultaneous crises of democracy and an inequality spawned by capitalism will be very hard to fix. The idea of miracles when it comes to fixing crises is always an issue when it comes to perhaps the biggest crisis of the 2020s, the crisis of global warming and of the environment. Uh, and today we're back on that subject, but with a, a hopeful book and a realistic book, uh, a book which appropriately enough is called No Miracles Needed, How Today's Technology Can Save Our Climate and Clean Our Air, uh, with a Stanford University professor, Mark Z. Jacobson. Um, Mark, no miracles needed. Um, does that mean that the climate crisis is going to be easy to fix? Well, first, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, no, it's not easy because it's re really a social and political issue to resolve and to try to, um, to get over the barriers to solving the problems. The good news is we have the technology, we have the technologies available and their costs are low. So from a technological and economic point of view, uh, we do have the solutions, and but we do not have the political willpower so far to really go all the way to address the climate and air pollution and energy security problems that the world faces uh, in the time necessary. I'm not sure whether that's an encouraging or an infuriating answer, Mark. I mean, not that I'm, of course, infuriated with you. It's not your fault. But the idea that we've got the technologies and we're lacking the political willpower. So first of all, before we get to the technologies or the political willpower. Talk about the problem. What do we need to fix in your mind? Because we've had so many shows about global warming and the environmental crisis. And I'm never entirely sure what the crisis is. Is it a crisis of carbon? Well, so I look at it from actually, there are three problems that I'm looking at uh, simultaneously to solve. One is air pollution. Uh, air pollution kills 7 million people worldwide. It's the second leading cause of death, it causes hundreds of millions more illnesses. And 20% of the deaths are children under the age of five years old. And 90% of the deaths and illnesses are caused by energy combustion, primarily burning fossil fuels and biofuels uh, and other uh, combustion technologies. And um, Mark, let me just jump in there. Um, that doesn't sound to me like a particularly new problem. I mean, we're all familiar with the work of Dickens from the 19th century. I'm <laughs> guessing those numbers were higher in the 19th century, weren't they? Well, proportionally, in terms of the percentage of the population, they were probably higher. But in terms of absolute numbers, since we have much higher population now and more exposure back in, yeah, during the Industrial Revolution, by the way, you know, and during Dickens' time, you know, most of the pollution was limited to the places where, which had the steam engines technologies, which were limited to Western Europe and, and then ultimately came to the North America. Um, so a lot of places, you know, they had some pollution in terms of biomass uh, pollution from burning uh, wood and dung for fuel and food, but uh, not the traditional air pollution that we have. But in you know, certainly 
England and Western Europe has suffered horribly as a percentage of the population, probably worse, much worse than today. But now, you know, we have eight billion people on Earth and seven million die from air. Okay, so point taken. So the first problem is air pollution. The second problem? Well, global warming, as you mentioned, is in terms of cost, air pollution kill, costs about $30 trillion per year in, in terms of statistical cost of life. And global warming does not cost nearly that much yet, but is expected to cost around that by 2050. But we are already experiencing horrible problems associated with global warming, including enhanced wildfires, uh, lots of heat stroke, heat stress, uh, droughts, floods, and more enhanced storms. Right, and it seems like, Mark, um, global warming brings out the apocalyptic in some people, at least. That's yeah. one of the areas where some people, when you talk to them, they say, well, parts of the world are going to become in an uninhabitable. Do you believe that might be the case by 2050, unless it's redressed now? Well, so we're at 1.1 degrees global warming since 1850 to 1900 period. And if we don't transition 80% by 2030 and 100% by 2035 to 2050, then we'll get to 1.5 degrees Celsius warming average by 2050. That will not, that will not destroy the earth, um, but it will cause a lot more deaths and illnesses that are occurring today and raise the cost of global warming to a few trillion dollars a year to about $30 trillion per year. Well, I'm uh, guessing which, if uh, in the worst case scenario by 2050, it could be a lot more than $30 trillion. Well, it could. I mean, if we, in the, in the limit of melting all the Arctic, sorry, the Antarctic ice, uh, you know, we have like 70 meters of sea level stored in ice throughout the world with about 60 meters in the Antarctic. And if we, if we actually melt all that, we would cover 7% of all the world's land with water. And most people live along the coastline in the world. And so that would cause devastating problems. So it's like that uh, credit card advertisement. Um, we might not be able to quantify the amount of damage done by that. Yeah, it's, it's a serious problem. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to deal with it seriously. So we've got global warming, we've got air pollution. And the third issue? It's energy insecurity. I mean, there are many types of energy insecurity. The most obvious is that at some point, fossil fuels and uranium are going to run out um, any time between 50 and 150 years is kind of the estimates. And at that point, if we don't have something in place, that'll result in economic, social, and political instability. It could result in chaos. Second, you know, there are many countries that import fuels from other countries, fossil fuels primarily. And like, for example, a lot of Europe imports natural gas from Russia. And so you can see that, you know, if a country controls the energy of another country, that can lead to a lot of shenanigans. And also in really... But that's always been a reality of human history. I mean, we're never going to entirely be able to get rid of that, can we? Well, um, if we go to entirely clean, renewable wind, water, and solar, we can get rid of most of it. Not entirely, but we'll get rid of almost almost all of it because we've, for example, we've done plans for every almost every country in the world that, and we find that every country can produce its own energy and to keep the grid stable. Even uh, it, there is an advantage of actually trading electricity between nearby countries not long distance countries, but right next door. So that's where I'm saying it's not. Right. So Mark, you've made, you've ruined some people's Valentine's Day. You've talked about these three, this triple whammy of air pollution, global warming and energy insecurity that's probably going to cost us around $100 trillion a year by 2050 unless it's addressed. But the good news, you say, is that we have the technologies now to deal with all three of these. And, and will these technologies deal with them collectively or do we need technologies specific technologies to deal with each problem 
Well, no, air pollution and global warming are both caused by the same sources. It's, it's combustion from fossil fuels and biofuels primarily. And by changing our energy infrastructure, so we don't rely on combustion fuels, we go entire, we electrify everything first of all, and then we provide that electricity with just wind, water, and solar, which I can define in a little bit. Then we eliminate 90% of air pollution problems right away. We eliminate about 75 to 80% of global warming because there are some emissions for global warming that are not related to energy. And we provide energy security as well, since these are re renewable resources that will be within country, in, in, within individual countries. So we eliminate most energy insecurity problems simultaneously. So, so, so you're saying we need to replace oil, gas, and coal-powered energy with electric, is that right? Right, well, we need to electrify, so when, for vehicles, there are four energy sectors. There's electricity, transportation, buildings, and industry, basically. And so for vehicles, they run primarily on gasoline and diesel, which comes from oil and jet fuel. So we replace all those vehicles with battery electric vehicles and some hydrogen fuel cell electric for long distance heavy aircraft and ships, for example, maybe long, some long distance trains and trucks. But that, so that solves the transportation for buildings. We'd eliminate, get natural gas in buildings, eliminate burning wood or dung or biomass, make them all electric, use electric heat pumps, which use one-fourth the energy as natural gas heaters, use electric induction cooktops instead of gas stoves, use uh, energy-efficient appliances, use uh, LED lights everywhere, basically no gas in a, in a home, uh, all electric. Energy efficiency improvements will help too. For, for in industry, we'd go to high-temperature electric technologies, uh, arc furnaces, induction furnaces, dielectric heaters, resistance furnaces, electron beam heaters. These are all existing technologies that give you high temperatures with just electricity. And so, and then we provide all the electricity in all these sectors, plus in the normal electric sector. Yeah, Mark, I've heard the electricity. argument by opponents of, uh, opponents of the green movement suggesting that electricity can be dirty too. Is there an argument there or is that just propaganda? Well, right now there is a lot of dirty electricity because a lot of it's produced from coal and natural gas and some from oil and also biomass. But we would be eliminating all those sources of dirty energy and changing them with clean energy sources, onshore and offshore wind, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and in power plants, concentrated solar power, geothermal electricity, uh, hydroelectricity, and small amounts of tidal and wave electricity. So no miracles needed, Mark. We, we, we've got the fix. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that there's a lot of competing interests. So in the U.S., for example, the present administration, they, you know, they also propose, let's, they also fund uh, carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen. Those are all basically covers for the fossil fuel industry. Carbon capture takes carbon dioxide out of coal-fired power plants or gas plants. And, and claims to then use that for something else. Most 75% is used to just to get more oil out of the ground. That's a boondoggle. It just increases air pollution, increases energy insecurity, hardly reduces any carbon. Same thing with direct air capture. We take carbon dioxide out of the air. That's being funded by the US government. Why? Because it takes energy, it takes equipment. Uh, you can take that same money and replace coal or, get, or gas with wind or solar and you not only reduce more carbon, but you eliminate the air pollution from the coal and gas, you eliminate the mining, you create energy security. Uh, Bioenergy is another problem uh, that just creates air pollution, doesn't eliminate the air pollution problem. 
new nuclear reactors that's being funded by our government a lot of governments around the world even though they take forever they take uh, 17 to 21 years now in liberalized markets to between planning and operation completely useless for trying to solve a problem that needs 80 percent solving by 2030 and costs about eight times more per unit energy than new wind or solar and has energy and security problems meltdown risk weapons proliferation risk waste issues what do you do with all the waste mining risk so and so then there's also funding for things like geoengineering, which is to let's cover the planet with pollution so to, to reflect sunlight to solve the climate problem, completely ignoring the air pollution or energy security problems we face. So we're, we're faced with this lack of understanding of what's useful and helpful for solving these problems in the time we need. Uh, people want to spend, a lot of people want to spend money on things that are not useful whatsoever. And that's the major problem we're facing. It's a political problem, of course, as you're suggesting, Mark. So what do we do with the West Virginian coal miners, who, of course, are both sort of symbolic and perhaps real players in American politics, the people who have made their living off dirty energy or mining dirty energy for many years, uh, often having out, uh, outweighted political significance, Joe Manchin, for example, in West Virginia. Um, should we just take their jobs away from them? Can we reinvent the West Virginian energy industry and give these people jobs within the context of wind, solar, and water innovation? Yes, definitely we'd retrain people who lose their jobs in the current fossil fuel industry. And I mean, we do calculate that we would create worldwide about 28 million more long-term full-time jobs than lost. In the US, it's three to four million. So even though there will be losses of jobs in some industries, there'll be more gains of jobs in renewable energy industries, such as solar manufacturing, installing solar, uh, wind manufacturing, uh, uh, making appliances like heat pumps, uh, induction cooktops, electric vehicles, battery storage, hydrogen fuel cells, uh, hydrogen electrolyzers. All these technologies need people to build them. And there is retraining going on in West Virginia right now in the solar industry, in the wind industry, and also in the electric appliances and machines industry. Mark, you teach at Stanford, which is, of course, the heart of Silicon Valley and of the uh, innovative tech world. Um, how important, in your view, is a startup culture for fixing this problem? Do we need more Teslas? Do we need, uh, as a company, not more cars? Uh, do we need more Elon Musks to pioneer this revolution? Or does the initiative really need to come from government itself? Well, we, we do, innovation helps. So, but a certain, the focus of that innovation should be improving these existing technologies. So improving solar panels, improving batteries, improving electric vehicles, this is, and making these technologies even better. They're already efficient. What we should not be investing in is, oh, let's just try and invest in something that we know that doesn't work, like carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen, uh, bioenergy, small modular reactors, uh, geoengineering, these things. These are technologies that we know do doesn't work. And we, Mark, you're presenting it as if we know. So why would anyone invest? How controversial are some of your arguments? Because they, make, they can make money for people. That's why they're investing. But they don't actually solve the problems we're facing. The people who are investing them are, you know, don't, are not looking at the air pollution problem. They're not looking at the energy and security problem. And they're not looking at all the carbon emissions associated with the, the technologies that they're trying to address. So what should the government do uh, in, in the same way as they stamp foods which are bad for you or cigarettes or alcohol? 
Yep. Should well, some of these technologies come come with a, a stamp of disapproval from the government? Well, that would be helpful. Certainly, I think they should be disapproved because the problem is they're lobbyists. There's so many lobbyists from the fossil fuel industry, the nuclear industry, the bioenergy industry that are all pushing these technologies. And so this is the problem we're facing. It's one of the biggest problems is information. The information that people, most people are not aware of what's really possible and what technologies are good and bad and ugly. And so I think that's part of my job as an educator to try to educate the public and policymakers and students about this. But I, you know, I only reach a few people. And so this really needs to be uh, amplified on a larger scale about what's good and bad. I mean, I, my primary field of focus is atmospheric science. I build these climate models that study the climate and study air pollution. And so that's my first field. And so having spent 20 years trying to understand the problems, I have a good feel for what's necessary to solve these problems. And that's what I've spent also the last 20 years doing overlapping the first 20 years as well. Mark, it, it seems as if when it comes to addressing this crisis, um, there's the democratic response, particularly in America, where, as you've suggested, lobbyists are all too powerful. Uh, and then a, more of a, a Chinese or a Singapore authoritarian technocratic model. Can we get to where you want to be in a democracy? It's possible. I mean, certainly China can mandate a lot of renewable energy really quickly. And so that's an advantage of what they're doing. In the U.S., it can. The U.S. can and other democracies can, but it all relies on information. I think most people have a good heart. Most people support renewable energy. But, you know, if, if people are not aware of the problems associated with bad technologies, then they're not going to make good decisions about them. I, but I think if they are aware, they will make better decisions. Well, you say most people are willing, most people have a good heart. The Republican Party, which is one of the two major parties in this country, for the most part, doesn't seem to accept that there is the kind of crisis in global warming and air pollution and energy insecurity that you're talking about. Well, the good thing is you don't have to believe in the problem to believe in the solution. So actually, there was a public opinion poll on this very point. And in the opinion poll, they asked, well, how many people believe in global warming? And the answer was about 68% or something. But they asked, how many people want a 100% clean renewable energy future? And, they said, and it was about 82%. So the question is, why do more people <laughs> believe believe in the solution of a renewable energy future than believe in the problem of global warming? Well, it turned out they asked additional questions. And the reasons were, well, they think renewable energy creates more jobs, it creates, it creates uh, allows people to own their own power, which is a very conservative ideals. You know, if you have your own solar on your roof, you don't rely on the government, for example. Uh, it creates, well, it creates jobs, it's energy, energy security, and also reduces air pollution. Actually, people are concerned, are not so much concerned about climate, but they are concerned about their health or their children's health. So I think that really resonates more with people than climate. Uh, so, but in fact, in the US, nine of the 10 states with the most wind power installed are led by Republican governments. And also, you know, in the states where the most wind power is installed, like in Iowa and South Dakota, they have no incentives, actually, no laws to move to, you know, 100% renewable. But South Dakota, 77% of its consumed electricity is wind last year. And another 50% uh, was hydro. So 127% of South Dakota's uh, electricity production last year was just wind and hydro. And they also produce fossil fuels. And, all the excess was exported. So the narrative on the left is wrong as well. It doesn't break down into good Democrats versus bad Republicans. No, it, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, everybody, I think, wants 
cheap energy and they'd ideally like it clean. Um, but, and I think it helps that wind and solar are so cheap. That's why Republicans really like it. Uh, whereas in democratic states, democratic states have all the laws to go to hundred percent renewables and there are, um, pushing for towards that. Forward. What about farming, Mark? Uh, we've done a number of shows on regenerative agriculture, how we eat, how we farm, the role of cattle in, in, in global warming. Um, if, if you get everything you want from wind, solar and water, you're still going to have uh, industrial farming using the same uh, destructive methods. And we're still going to be eating hamburgers, which uh, aren't good for the environment in terms of cattle. Yeah, so, so energy is about 75 to 80% of greenhouse gas emissions and about 90% of air pollution. So the non-energy emissions include methane from cattle and you know, feedlots and from chicken and pigs and manure and, and landfills and rice paddies as well. But there are also uh, halogens, which are like chlorofluorocarbon type substances that cause global warming and nitrous oxide from fertilizers. So we have to address those, those emissions as well. And so that we do simultaneously with addressing energy. Um, and there, you know, methane, you can trap, like I mean, manure, you can put in a manure in a device called a digester, which will then trap the methane. And then that, that methane can be disposed of in, in certain ways. You could, for example, use it to produce hydrogen for use in a fuel cell that would eliminate the air pollution from that process and convert methane, which is a very strong greenhouse gas to carbon dioxide, which is much weaker than methane. Per unit mass. People are going to be watching. I was asked this question and think, oh, this is just, this is too daunting, too complicated, too technological. What can I do? Should they be driving electric cars? Should, be, should they put solar panels on their roofs if they can? Uh, should they be investing or, or using wind energy? I'm not even sure how that works. Yeah, well, individuals can do a lot. I mean, the simplest thing is weatherize your home, just put sealants on the windows and cracks in the windows and doors uh next step yeah go next time you need to change your gas air heater or water heater go to a heat pump it uses one-fourth the energy electric heat pump as gas uh, for water air heating uh, go to an electric induction cooktop instead of a gas stove use transition all your lights from incandescent lights to led you they use one tenth one tenth the energy uh yeah electric vehicles uh, solar on your roof if you can if you have if you have that ability or you can, if you don't have, if you're in an apartment, you can get 100% renewable electricity from many providers now, not everywhere in the U.S., but a lot of places in the U.S., uh, the utilities will sell you 100% ele renewable electricity at the same cost or less than uh, fossil electricity. And also certainly telecommuting more, walking more, you know, tr you know being... Yeah, but you know as well as I do, Americans aren't walking more. Well, uh, except they during the... Cars more than anything else, and... Um... Uh, so realistically, this certainly isn't going to happen by 2050, is it? Even in the best case scenario. Well, in our scenarios, actually, we assume people don't really change their habits. So we assume they're not walking any more than today. And so if, if our scenarios pan out, then it's still technically possible, even if we don't change our habits very much, because most of the energy efficiency improvements are due to changing the technologies. Going from a gas heater to an electric heat pump, you use one-fourth the energy. Going from a, a gasoline vehicle to an electric vehicle, you use one-fourth the energy. Eliminating energy, energy just to mine, transport, and refine fossil fuels and uranium, that's 11% of all energy worldwide. If, if we go to wind, water, and solar, we have no more mining for fuels. That would eliminate 11% of all energy consumption. We add all these improvements plus some energy efficiency improvements for, in, 
in uh, devices and machines, we get about 56% lower energy demand just due to electrifying with efficient energy technologies. And that means we're using a lot less energy without changing our habits. Mark, you make it sound, I wouldn't say too easy, but certainly relatively easy, no personal sacrifice. Surely there will be personal sacrifices. Should we be flying, for example? Well, we should fly less, but I'm assuming we're probably going to fly the same or even more. Um, and if, but if we do fly, we should use we should develop electric planes, which are existing right now for small, short-haul flights. Uh, some electric planes actually have flown, and they're planning to come en masse pretty soon. And for long-haul flights, it'll be likely a hydrogen fuel cell. And that's the last 5%. We have 95% of the technologies we need now, but that last 5% uh, will probably get somewhere between 2025 and 2035. And that includes long-distance aircraft and ships, probably hydrogen fuel cell, and some uh, industrial technologies that we know how to do but still aren't commercially developed. Is this mantra of no miracles needed, is it a, a political turn-on or a political turn-off? Really, ever since Al Gore, we haven't had a major politician in this country who have built their brand around the environment, and the crisis is getting ever more acute. Could this be something that a politician in one of the parties actually embraces, or is it for some reason or other the kiss of death politically for an aspiring politician, a president? No, no. We, I mean, we've, I've been developing plans uh, since 2009, and we've had many policies and laws passed based on 100% renewables that this kind of whole movement that we started with these 100% renewable plans. In fact, we have new, not only New York and California passed 100% renewables laws, but we now have 19 states and territories in the U.S. that have passed laws. We have 100, over 180 cities, I think closer to 200 cities and towns that have passed laws in the U.S. We have 400 international businesses, including eight of the 10 business, biggest businesses in the world. There are 60 countries with 100% renewable electricity laws. This, this is an entire movement, and many policymakers have embraced it uh, and have been elected in, based on... Well, give me an example of one who I might have heard of. Well, Jared Polis in Colorado. Uh, okay. That was, you know, there was one who, he ran his election. Anyone in California? You and I both live in California. <laughs> well, Jerry Brown, actually, when we went to meet his office in 2015, you know, we, two, week, two months later after we went there and gave us the plan that we published our California energy plan, and he proposed a 50% law two months later that passed to go to 50% renewable electricity. Then three years later, uh, the California Senate then passed SB 100, which was 100% renewables for California. And that was under Jerry Brown as well. Why doesn't Gavin, Gavin Newsom, who's been on this show a few times, why doesn't he pick it up? He's as, as young and as innovative and about as daring as you get in conventional American politics. Uh, he actually did. He has supported our plan publicly in the past. But, but right now, since there's already a law, I mean, there are he, they are making policies that are strong, but they're not strong enough. Like they don't have the, the, there is a law to go to get rid of gasoline cars by 2035 in California. Uh, buildings, there are laws in lots of cities in California to remove natural gas or to in, well, not have natural gas in new buildings and remove them in some buildings. But there isn't a comprehensive law to go to 100% renewables in all energy sectors in California or any other state. In fact, the only country in the world with a 100% law to go for all sectors is Denmark, but, and that's only by 2050. Well, uh, we've, we've... Denmark is 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 a punchline on this show. Anytime, anytime, anyone mentions Denmark, they get a, a spanking because <laughs> we can't, of course, become like Denmark. In all seriousness, Mark, 
It's the first time you've laughed on the show. Um, this is all good news, but you're not smiling. My sense is that you know that in, a, in an odd way, this is even more frustrating. We have the technology, but we lack the political will. So what needs to change? Well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We, have, we can do it, and it is frustrating because we do have these political and social obstacles. Um, we need to educate people more, the public and policymakers, particularly policymakers, that you know, we don't have much time, and we need to deploy as fast as possible, and this will have a huge benefit to do this, to transition. Uh, so it's education, and it's trying to get rid of this all-of-the-above policy, but there are some practical issues, like transmission is not easy to to zone, for example. Uh, you know, there are supply, there are going to be supply line bottlenecks because we're trying to build so much so fast that will be an issue. Um, and yes, and then countries that are at war. I mean, how do you transition a country that's at war or a country that's entirely in poverty? So we'll need assistance. Yeah, I suppose you're going to get a lot of wind, solar, or water in Ukraine or or, or Syria, and, and in. In all seriousness, in international terms, blah, Greta Thunberg famously described a lot of the work the UN and these international, supposedly international organizations do as blah, blah, blah. How essential is international accord? Or can this be done by some of the most powerful national governments, the Chinese, the Indians, the United States, the EU? Well, the more groups and people that are involved, the better. I mean, I think it's really it's a combination of science, business, culture and community that are needed to affect a change, not only to you know, educate the public and policymakers about them, but to, you know, yeah, to galvanize people around around transitioning. Um, so it's partly, you know, and policymakers are influenced by the public, but all, you know, a lot through nonprofits and these NGOs, you know, that um, you know, they have to counteract the lobbyists that are that are always in the ear of the policymakers. So I'm, you know, I'm hopeful because I know it's possible, and I know there are a lot of examples of. I mean, there are ten countries that are 100% renewable electricity right now, and but that's not enough. And they and, and of those renewable. ten, which is the largest and the most powerful? Well, there's okay. So Iceland is small. Norway, uh, there's Paraguay, exactly. um, Denmark. There's Albania, not not Denmark actually. Paraguay, Uruguay, uh, Tajikistan is pretty close there. Uh, Costa Rica, uh, but Ethiopia, Democratic Republic of the Congo. They're most they're all driven mostly by hydro. So that's um, uh, and you know the the nice thing is that well it's possible that it's definitely these are examples and the more examples we have the better. Um, there are examples like South Australia is close to 100% renewables. California is like 50% renewable. Um, Mark, do you think also the, the green movement, the movement dedicated to this issue needs to sing from the same song sheet? Because I've had so many people on the show talking apocalyptically who would essentially reject what you're saying. I know there's no complete consensus, but in a way, are the deep pessimists on this as much of a problem as the energy companies themselves? I don't think they're as much of a problem because they're not actually causing the pollution, <laughs> but, they're, but they are, you know, I think they, they do distract and then maybe some people are turned off by them. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, if we do stop emissions, we can reduce CO2 in the atmosphere naturally. I mean, by 2100, we'll get down maybe to 350 parts per million if we can get 80% emissions 
emission elimination by 2030, 100% by 2035 to 2050. And that would address the climate problem. But I think the most apocalyptic thing is that people are not, do not believe that we will have that social, that political will to do it rather than whether we have the technologies to do it. Um, but I, you know, I want to be optimistic and I, I think it's more important to actually try to actually, if, if you don't believe, if you think we're having a big problem, we should actually work as hard as possible to solve it, keep working. We have to just keep you know, pushing, pushing, pushing uh, and to deploy, deploy, deploy until the problem is solved. Mark, finally, um, your subtitle of, of No Miracles Needed is how today's technology can save our climate and clean our air. What about tomorrow's technology? I mean, some of this technology is relatively new. Is there still a, a Hail Mary potentially in the future that can solve a lot of this stuff without significant investment? Or have all the cards essentially been dealt? I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't support any like Hail Mary technologies because we, first we don't have the time and it's just not worth the risk because we, we can solve the problem with what we have. Right, right. the one I've read about is, is um, burying carbon deep into the earth. That, I mean, that's, the, that's carbon capture and that just is not gonna, no, there's no profit for any company to do that. And so they, what they do instead with that carbon is they use it to dig more oil out of the ground. 75% of all captured carbon today is used to enhance oil recovery, which just eliminates 40% of that carbon that's captured goes right back to the air. The rest is planned to replace fossil fuels with more combustion fuels. So you create the same amount mm. of air pollution as you did before. Mark, you teach at Stanford, educate, educate, educate. You're talking about education. Sometimes I worry that when people come up with the education fix, it's because they can't think of any others. Um, how receptive are the kids at Stanford? Most of them still dream of being Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. Um, do you feel that you are beginning to educate a new generation of kids, smart kids, powerful kids, who are going to be able to execute this? Uh, yeah. I mean, in our program, I mean, we have really passionate What's students. your program? It's called the Atmosphere Energy Program in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. And, you know, we, I've had a program here since 2004 that's atmosphere energy program we've over 500 master students and phd students have gone on to do great things in business and government and nonprofits and startups even and so i see passion in these students and i see they want to affect a change and they really want to solve a problem and yeah they they think positively and so i'm optimistic and i'm proud of them as well